Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. This week, my life and the EU bubble debate was all about the EU presidential debate in Maastricht. I was co-moderating, and this episode is going to feature highlights of the debate. We've tried to keep the final section of the debate in there, in its integrity, so that you can get a real flavor about what all of the five candidates thought about the future of Europe. And we're going to splice in a few of the really juicy bits on digital and climate policy as well. We're going to dive straight into the debate. Remember, the leading candidate, Manfred Weber, from the European People's Party wasn't there, but the candidates from the Socialists, the European Conservatives and Reformists, the Liberals and Democrats, the Greens and the European Left were all there on stage in Maastricht. Enjoy. Good evening and welcome to the Maastricht debate. 2019's first debate between candidates for European Commission president. I'm Ryan Heath, the political editor of Politico Europe. And I'm Rianne Letschert, the rector magnificus of this university. And I think they chose us because of our names, Ryan. They might have done that. Yes. Tonight, five candidates for the presidency of the European Commission will join us on stage to defend their vision, their ambitions for the future of Europe. Now, there are two candidates who are not on stage tonight. The first, Ariel Junqueras from the European Free Alliance, can't be here because he's in pre-trial detention in Spain. (laughs) The other, Manfred Weber of the European People's Party, is attending a celebration of his political mentor in Germany and declined our invitation, an invitation we offered a year ago. So make of that what you will. Now, the other thing that you will notice is the shortage of women on stage. Now, that was not the choice of the debate organizers, but the choice of the political parties. And you will understand that we will question you on this topic during this evening. (laughs) So it's time for our opening statements. We're going to start with you, Frans Timmermans, from the Netherlands and the candidate of the European Socialists. You have one minute. Take it away. Thank you very much. And I'm really excited to be here. This is the place I was born. And when I was born here, my father was a policeman, military policeman, patrolling borders that are no longer there. And I see now people sitting here that would not be there 50 years ago. So, you know, if you want to know what the force of Europe is, look at Maastricht and you know exactly what we can achieve. What I would like the young people here to do t- tonight is to think, where do I want to be five years from now? Where do I want to be 10 years from now? And then take it from there and look at us and then think who has the best plans for the next five years, for the next 10 years. I propose dialogue over confrontation. I propose equality over discrimination. I propose a sustainable future over a fossil fuel economy. I propose that we do this together and not give the nationalists any room. You know who did this last night? Pedro Sanchez, and he won the election in Spain. So there is hope for those choices, but the choice is yours and never be indifferent, choose. Perfect. David Kintyre. Jan Zaradil from the Czech Republic and the European Conservative. It is your turn. Thank you. Hello, everyone. On Wednesday, it will be 15 years since my country joined the European Union. It was a good thing. Many changes happened over those last 15 years. Many changes are yet to happen waiting for you. But I have to say that we are still not the same. We are still somehow different and we have to respect that. Do you know, for instance, what's the average salary here in the Netherlands? It's 2,000 euros. In my country, in the Czech Republic, it's 1,000 euros. So it's a very clear example that tailor-made solutions sometimes are necessary for coping with the problems and not always the Europe-wide solution is possible. What I would like to see is a new balance between national and European so that we could find together good solutions for the future. This is what I call flexible Europe and this is, in my feeling, the only way forward from the current deadlock. Next up. Next up, Geva Hofstadt from Belgium and the Liberals and Democrats. Yeah, I I, I don't agree with him. Is that okay? (laughs) Go ahead, please. It's a debate. (laughs) Well, I think that the youth had to understand, and they understand it, that the world of tomorrow is a completely different world of the world of today. 
It will be a world of empires, a world of China dominating, India dominating, the US, the Russian Federation. And living in such a world is completely different than 20, 30 or 40 years ago. It will be a world in which our standards, our way of living, our values, our way of thinking of our youth is under threat of these empires. So we need to create really a strong Europe, a united Europe as a counterweight for that. And for that, we need also a new force in the European Union and in this European debate, a centrist, pro-European force, a little bit away from the old tiled parties, socialists and EPP. Certainly the EPP is so tired that they are not on stage this evening after one week already, so it seems so to be that that is the crucial thing to do, a new Europe in a new world. Violeta Tomic of Slovenia and the European left. Please go ahead. Good evening, everybody. Nobody can deny that uh, today European Union is quite far away from ideals of democracy, equality and justice. For the bankers and stockbrokers in Frankfurt and City of London, the last economic crisis is just a distant memory. But for the people of Europe who pay this crisis with millions and billions of euros of austerity, effects are still here. All across Europe, working families are facing the same problem, how to pay the bills, how to assure the better future for their children. But the politicians in Brussels have time and time again put the interests of banks and corporations in front of interests of the people. And I'm not a Brussels insider like all these gentlemen here are. And I'm glad today that I can present to you the vision of uh, the European left. And your time is up, of people in front of the corporations. Thank you. And finally, we return to the Netherlands and Baz Eickhout from the European Greens. Thank you and good evening, everyone. My name is Baz Eickhout. And I was, before I went into politics, a climate change researcher. And climate change brought me into the political arena. And I think climate change is one of the greatest challenges that we need to tackle. And that is certainly one of my core beliefs that we need to tackle at the European level. Now, climate change is becoming more and more center stage, literally, tonight. <laughs> but I think it's more important that we not only talk about climate change, but also act on it. We as European Greens, we as Greens know how to act on climate. But we also know that action on climate change needs to go hand in hand with social justice. And that's exactly the new Europe that we are fighting for. A green and social Europe, so a different Europe. We believe in European cooperation, we believe in strengthening European democracy, but we want to see a socially just and green Europe. After opening statements, the first section of the debate moved into digital Europe. Two of the big topics were whether tech companies need to pay more tax and what sort of public investment is required. It also saw one of the first attack moves of the debate, with Baz Eickhout moving in against Guy Verhofstadt. Can I just challenge For one two seconds? On, yeah, I'm challenge on Mr. Verhofstadt because he's always very much into investment, investment. But really, I cannot see that going together with the Liberals have been pushing for an austerity agenda over the last five years on everything. It's always so easy in campaign time to say okay. we need investment, but how oh. do you rhyme that with your austerity agenda coming from Germany, Netherlands, because, Denmark, because, because, the Liberals because for the simple... Because for the simple reason that, in my opinion, it is not the public authority who have to create uh, these internet platforms. You are talking about public investment. Public investment is needed in roads. Public investment is needed in not in digital infrastructure, in public transport. Digital but is this, in my opinion, not needed? It's not to the public authorities to start an internet business and to start Google. Can you imagine that it is uh, the Dutch government or the Belgian government <laughs> to talk about, or the European <laughs> government, who will say, "Okay, I am." sitting here and that is a load and that not that we will invest no the problem is totally different and that nobody of you have tackled on this moment okay and that was you. fun no, but your time is up no, we're running this debate not okay. you mr hofstadt 
Mr. Saradil, one of our master's university students, who's named Daniele Bereni from Italy, asks about taxation of digital companies. And she wants to know what is a fair tax rate for digital companies to pay, in your view? Well, I have no upper limit, no lower limit. And I think that the question of taxation... Isn't zero a little bit <laughs> too no, low? I think that the question we of taxation is very, uh, it's, it's a very illustrative because it gives us a clear answer where we differentiate. I don't think that taxation, whatever taxation, should be a matter for European Union or European Commission. Now, EU surveys consistently show that most Europeans believe that the EU needs to take a strong role in both climate and environmental action. It's not something to be left to the lower levels of government or public policy. That's especially true of the opinions of young Europeans. So let's start with a relevant hands-up question in that regard. Each of you, raise your hand if you support the student climate strikers. We've got four out of five. Okay. Now, here's the hard question, and you don't get to answer, Mr. Zaradil, because it won't be relevant to you. What are you going to do about supporting them if you become commission president? Because it's a follow-up question, we give you 30 seconds only for your answer. And the first person to answer is Guy Verhofstadt. I, I think that uh, we need to go from uh, the defensive way we look to climate change to a more offensive way. And that is based, in my opinion, on, on, on two different uh, strategies. The first is uh, to put environmental standards in our trade negotiations. I don't think that we need to go forward with a, a trade deal when a country is saying, oh, the Paris uh, Agreement doesn't exist. And second, to invest in these specific uh, activities for the future. Batteries, or for example, if I can give an, uh, this example... Three seconds. Okay, I will wait for the next one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Violeta Tomic, your turn. Thank you. I saw a very uh, emotional speech of Greta in European Parliament, and I couldn't agree more. Our house is falling apart. And the time just for cosmetic changes is passed away. It's finished. Now we have to act. We have to act very, very quickly. And you have to make a plan how to battle the biggest crisis of 21st century. Because now it is humanity which has to survive. And we have to fight for it. Thank Straight you. to you, Baz Eichardt. Well, first of all, we've got news because the Liberals in the European Parliament voted for negotiations with the United States who did not sign up or who is saying we want to get out of the Paris Agreement. So if Guy Verhofstadt is serious about his claim, then he will also make sure that those negotiations will not take place. So put the money where your mouth is. And this is... And this is exactly the problem. Everyone is talking about climate change, but we need to act on climate change. We need to keep the fossils in the ground. And this European Commission is still too much also giving subsidies to fossil fuel. Thank and that's you. one of the biggest problems. Frans Timmermans. As Commission President, I will take personal responsibility for the implementation of the 17 strategic develop sustainable development goals of the United Nations. This is the plan the world has developed at the highest level to get us to a sustainable world in 2030 and to make Europe carbon independent by 2050. So I will make every Commissioner responsible for part of the 17 SDGs and I will be personally accountable to the European Parliament and to the European Council for concrete results in the five years to come. We need to act now, we need to act quickly, no time to waste. Uh, you know, I would like to know why you didn't raise your hand. Well, so you get also 30 seconds. Because there's a lot of, <laughs> lot of strong words, a lot of strong verbal commitments, but we haven't fulfilled our commitments already done. We are still putting ahead of us new commitments, zero carbon until 2050. I think that we have to act realistically. We have to phase out, for instance, coal burning. If we talk sustainable, let's talk sustainable. We have to phase out coal burning in a sustainable way because some economies, and particularly economies of Central and Eastern European countries, are not ready for that. One of the funniest moments of the debate came when the socialist candidate, Franz Timmermans, urged people to vote green. And, uh, you know, if you look at the voting patterns in the European Parliament over the last five years, three parties standing here together are really on the green side. You're a bit in the middle, uh, you're in the red zone with the dinosaurs, but, but, but Mr. Weber and his EPP is even beyond, beyond, uh, behind you. So, you know, th those are the results over the last five years. Um, so, first thing you need to do is to go and vote. Go vote green. Uh, and these three parties... <laughs> well, 
we've definitely made headline news tonight. <laughs> yes, green is not the sole property of the Green Party. Green is what the unified left does, what we do, and we will do it together. We are not in a competition here. This is not a beauty contest. This is about your future. As the debate moved into questions about the overall future of Europe, we asked all the candidates whether they would support a gender-equal team of European commissioners, that is, 50-50 men and women. All of the candidates said yes, but then we asked them how they're going to make that happen. You have 30 seconds to tell us how you are actually going to bring this promise that you just made to reality. Jan Zaradil, you begin. Well I think actually this is a very good proposal uh, that each state, each government should come with an equal uh, pair of candidates. And then, of course, I firmly believe that there will be enough female candidates that will be uh, good, that will, that will have good expertise, that will be eligible for the job. So if it goes this way, I think that we can easily solve this problem. Thank you. Kiefer Hofstad, what's your uh, view on this? Well, uh, it's, it's true, and the, the proposal is the best proposal you can have, that every country has to come forward with two candidates. The question is how you oblige the member states to do so. I think we have a weapon as European Parliament, and we have to do the hearings. And at the end of the hearings, we have to adopt the whole Commission. We could say, as Parliament, we don't start the hearings and there will never be an acceptation of your Commission if all the member states are not committing to have two Amen. candidates, female and male. Violetta Tomic. European left uh, is, in European Parliament, the only parliamentary group which has the similar number of men and women. And it was not... It just happens, and also the leading candidates, we have two, Nico Kue and me. So, we don't want to fight for quotas because in left we have equal rights. But this proposal for the European commissioners, it seems good for me. Thank you. <laughs> Very clear. Well, first of all, practice what you preach, and also we as Greens have two Spitzenkandidaten, so we have two lead candidates, a man and a woman, and Ska Keller, they she will be there in Florence and Brussels doing the other two debates. So that's first. Right. Secondly, as a president of the European Commission, you have a power towards the countries. Indeed, you force them to come up with two candidates, but also make very clear, if they want to have a good position in the European Commission, they need to deliver on female candidates because I, as a president of the European Commission, will only hand out the good positions to female <laughs> candidates. Fighting words, Franz Timmermans, can you match it? Did I, did I mention Pedro Sanchez already tonight? Yeah. I think I did. Huh? Yeah. 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 Let me mention him again. He did talk about quota, but when he came with the government, there were more women in it than men, and they are all high quality. So the danger of quota is that you then get the stigma, as woman, you're in there because of a quota, not because of your quality. So I don't like the idea of quota. Do, don't tell, just do. And I, and Buss is absolutely right. The president of the commission can arm twist a member state to come up with a good female candidate. And in response to that, he can give that candidate a very good portfolio. And Parliament can also Thank you play. very I, much. I would say I, I agree with you. Thank you very Parliament, Parliament, Parliament. There's a lot of men speaking, yeah. but there's a female yes. moderator. And when the rector speaks, eh? when the rector speaks, everyone stops. Eh? We agree on something. I'm with him. <laughs> no, but I think, I think, Ryan, what we've just seen here is history being made. Yeah, because all our candidates on live streaming in the full audience have committed themselves to having a gender-balanced Commission. So Let's thank see you if very Manfred much Weber is tweeting at home. I no, he's, he said it. Oh yeah, we missed one. To him. <laughs> no, to be fair to him, he's also said 50-50. That's yes, he has. Okay. He has. That is. We have them all on board. That's already very work. generous of you, uh, Mr. No, Timmermans. Credit. I believe we have to defend ourselves. Now, a general question for you all. We're going to move on. You have female uh, commissioner. Uh, we have. No, no, no. We're moving on with the debate. Back over here. Now, if I've done my homework correctly, each of you earns between 3,500 and 23,000 euros per month before taxes. Most young people in Europe earn less than 1,500 euros per month. 
if they have a job at all. So my question is, what will your version of Europe do for young people with an insecure or low-paid job, or no job at all? No blah blah here, just be honest. And tell us also if you think it's not the EU's job to solve this problem. Kiva Hofstadt, you go first. Well, I think that we have to, to do two specific things. I increase the uh, labor mobility in, in Europe. You know, the labor mobility in Europe is only 1%. So at the end of the year, only 1% of the people are working in another country than where they started. In the US, for example, it's 10%. So, and I have today, we need to increase this labor mobility because there are 3 million vacancies inside Europe. So it's the first thing to do. And the second thing to do, I believe also, and I'm a liberal, so it's not easy to tell that, and certainly not uh, when we were criticized about it, also for a social Europe. I think there is also a social policy that needs to be done by the European Union. <laughs> so he, he has nearly a heart attack now. So, uh, be careful, be, be careful. Aware, uh, for France. And that is to have this minimum social security level. That has to be the same in all the countries of the European Union. Because otherwise, there will be never, never the security for these young people. And so this labor mobility cannot be increased. So that social pillar needs to be built. Now <laughs> we will go to Violeta Tomic. Please, your turn. Yes, it is a shame for European Union that it is hiding 120 million of uh, poor people and 21 million of unemployed. Most of them are young people. It is a very, very bad start for your career and for your family life if you have no access to proper jobs and to, to normal housing. So that's why we have to really take care of full employment and uh, the minimum wage, which will be 20% over the minimum uh, costs of each country, and social insurance, pension insurance, we have to make a welfare state for all. And ECB should take into concern full employment, not just inflation and euro. Baz that, Baz, that was a very concrete proposal from Violeta Tomic. Uh, what do you think about that and what else would you do to support those young people? I agree here. Uh, I'm also a bit uh, surprised, to be very honest, that, that this is a bit maybe confusing for, for people in the audience, that every time when we are discussing we seem to agree, although this is exactly a topic where the current European Union did not deliver. Mm -hmm. Why is there no proposal for a minimum wage at the European level? It did not come from the European Commission, the Liberals have never seen proposals from them on that, and now suddenly we are supporting it. Why is there still possibility not to pay your interns? Also there we can make regulation, has not been proposed. Would you... Would you make so that those, a are, those, are two, those are already two proposals. Third, room for investment. That means we need to change our austerity policies. That has always been imposed by the current status quo parties, and now they suddenly want to change it. Even Manfred Weber, he's not here, but otherwise he would have said, it's time for a new chapter. Sorry, guys, you've been writing this book now for I decades. Know. No. I know. It's okay. time okay. we okay. have so a new... I know. I know. You too, Mr. Bostad. So, Baz... Now it's time to put your money where your mouth is. Uh, you are probably not going to become commission president being you from the Labour Party. You don't know. But that's not my point. My point, is, my point is that your votes could help elect that commission president. So would you make, as a condition for supporting someone to be commission president, uh, support for those sort of initiatives for you? Absolutely. It's very clear for the Greens, and I said it in the introduction, a green agenda needs to go hand in hand with social justice and a social agenda. And for the Greens, it's very clearly the new European Commission finally needs to deliver on green and social issues going hand in hand. And now we turn to Frans Timmermans, because you have been writing the book, yep. according to Bas. So yep. what's your answer and look, your look, reaction? Look what Stefan Löfven did, the Swedish Prime Minister. He came up with the idea of the social pillar, innovation. And we have already, thanks to the European Parliament, 24 legislative proposals have been adopted to make Europe more social. So we are moving, but not fast enough. I agree with Bas. We need a minimum wage in every European member state, which should be approximately 60% of the median wage. Then you can construct a, a, a decent social system. But we all also need to understand that a 16-year-old person with a rucksack on his back with Deliveroo letters on it is not an entrepreneur. It's somebody who deserves a decent contract, somebody who deserves social protection. And would it kill us 
Would it kill us to pay 50 cents more for a pizza so that we can be sure that people are protected when they do their jobs? No, it wouldn't. And these are the things we need to do in the next couple of years. We also need to have a fair taxation system, and we need to restore the position of trade unions so that they can negotiate and bargain collective agreements so that salaries can go up. And we can also solve the problem of Central Europe because salaries are far below what they should be Thank in Central Europe. Thank Eastern. you. Perfect timing. Mr. Zaradil, are you out on a limb on this Thank topic you. or are you going to agree? Thank you very that? much. Now, do you know what's the minimum wage here in the Netherlands? It's 1,600 euros per month. In my country, it's 500 euros. So the truth is that our economies are still very diverse. Our pension systems, our welfare systems, our social schemes are very diverse and they stem from different traditions, and it would be very unwise to try to harmonize them by force from above. Second thing is, and let's be again very honest, European Commission will not create jobs for you. European Commission can create atmosphere or can create conditions for in which jobs will grow. Do you know what's the unemployment in my country? It's less than 3%. It's the lowest in European Union because we have flexible single labor market, we have flexible part-time jobs, and we introduced a good labor code, and I think that we should encourage member states to follow. And I don't think that it would help to come with a bigger redistribution. Thank we should you okay. very much. Thank you very much. Pick up on this. Two se I, three I, seconds. I'd like to pick up on this because the cost of living in Central and Eastern Europe and Western Europe is not that far apart anymore. But the wages very often are only one-third of Western Europe. Many times from Western European companies not paying decent salaries in Central and Eastern Europe. This needs to change. But for that to change, Eastern Europe, Central and Eastern Europe should let trade unions actually have some influence in society. They have. No, they have. Excuse me. Not like in Hungary. My dear candidates, dear candidates, we now go to the specific questions we have for each of you. We are really running out of time, so we are going to hurry a little bit. And I'll start with you, Ms. Tomic. Your party, the European Left, says on its website, and I quote, has been the only European parliamentary group systematically opposed to the European model of Maastricht. Oh, I was... <laughs> End of quote. Meaning the EU built around a single market, currency, political union. Now, we are here in Maastricht tonight in a reunited continent, an enlarged union, and during Europe's longest period of peace. Is it really so bad? Well, I'm very glad to have this debate in Maastricht, which is very famous on Maastricht rules, which is very strict about fiscal discipline, about austerity and everything, but not a word inside about social justice, uh, full employment, welfare state, pensions, salaries, minimum salaries, nothing of it. So we think that this is the reason that far-right is rising, because they harvest success of these neoliberal policies and they collect the anger and frustration of all those people who have the feeling that neoliberal globalization is leaving them behind. That's why we need more justice, more social Europe, because if we want to save the Europe from itself, then we have to create more just social system, not one for the rich and another for the poor. Thank you. Bazai counts. many Europeans say they worry about terrorism and security more than anything else. Do the Greens have anything to say to those voters? How can you make them be reassured, or are you going to give up on their votes? Absolutely not. And what is the most important on security is that we need more cooperation. If you now look at the biggest problems, when we are looking at terrorist attacks, quite often they were known, but they were not being communicated to each other, or they could run away to another country without even notifying each other. This is showing you where Europe is not delivering. Europe is not delivering on our security because we are not working together. We need more cooperation of the secret services in every national member state. That is one of the key proposals that we are putting forward, and that is one of the bigger problems. So we absolutely see 
why people don't see European solutions. However, not providing then European cooperation is not the solution, and that's what the populists are saying. It doesn't deliver, so we want to go out. That's not the issue, because the terrorists are cross-border. They are moving around. They are communicating with each other. We need more cooperation at the European level to make sure that we are tackling also terrorism. Now, if I can follow up on a slightly different topic, uh, the Greens are a very left-wing pro-EU party. Correct. Um, how far will you go to stop, to stop Manfred Weber from the right wing becoming Commission President? This is really entirely to Manfred Weber himself. Is he going to build a majority with the progressive parties that really want a different Europe that needs to deliver on democracy, green and social? Or is he going to continue the path that we unfortunately saw is that they are more and more working with the right? Well, I can say you one thing, one thing, and maybe this time I will not mention Sanchez in Spain, but I will mention the Partido Popular in Spain. They lost because they moved to the right, and the only thing that happened is making Vox bigger and making themselves smaller. Thank, Thank you, you very much. <laughs> Mr. Timmermans, the EU's budget rules and bailout approaches have very mixed reviews, and for many they are considered far too harsh. Knowing what you know today, what would you do differently as president when it comes to the economy? What we need is to make sure that we convince Europeans to leave this fear for moral hazard behind. What I'm saying is this, Europeans today fear sharing their destiny with other Europeans because they believe other Europeans make abuse of that, make bad use of that. That is going to hold us back. And we need to have a debate of how we organize solidarity within societies because the difference between rich and poor in most of our societies has usually increased, which is undermining societies and which is helping the far right. And we need to make sure that, you have, that we have more solidarity at the European level. I, for instance, would be in favor of a fund funded by all member states that could come to the assistance of member states when they get into economic trouble so that they don't have to cut on social spending. That would make a huge and huge difference uh, in the European Union when a crisis occurs. I also believe we need eurobonds, not a popular point in this country, but it's much cheaper for the Dutch taxpayer to be in one group with one uh, 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 security than to leave member states on their own. They will be the prey of the financial markets. We've seen it with Greece. This should never Thank be you. repeated again. Thank you, Mr. Timmermans. Now, I have a follow-up on a slightly different topic, just like with Mr. Eichhardt. Let's get practical for a second. Uh, your commission president, Donald Trump, tweets out that he's going to impose new car tariffs tomorrow. But he didn't call you or your trade commissioner. So who are you going to call and what are you going to do in response? I'm probably going to be on the next plane to Washington and see if I can see him. Um, and um, I will also make very clear that if we are united as Europeans, the way we retaliate will hurt them more than it will us. But the best thing is to do not to get there because we all get hurt if we go into protectionism. I think we have a huge task to stay united as Europeans and to show Donald Trump that we cannot be played off one against the other and that we will prevent the multilateral system from collapsing. That's what he wants. That's what we don't want. We want to think about a post-Trump world where solidarity is back again between the United States and Europe. Now, turning to you, Mr. Zaradil, uh, we now have a stronger border and coast guard, something you support, but we also have a naval rescue mission in Europe that has no ships. Doesn't that condemn migrants to drowning in the Mediterranean? Well, I have heard Mr. Juncker saying that he would uh, like to find funds for employing 10,000 new members or employees in Frontex. I would say that if he has funds, he should rather try to assist national capacities in countries like Bulgaria or Spain or Italy because I believe that their national capacities know better uh, on site how to tackle the situation. I think three or four weeks ago I talked with a Bulgarian Prime Minister and I just asked him if we had an option, uh, would you like to have stronger Frontex with more employees, or would you like rather to be assisted from the European Union by some you know, solidarity package to help you with your national capacities? He, of course, choose the other option. So I would go rather in a way of strengthening national capacities of our border states. 
Thank you. We also have a follow-up question for you. Your natural ally seems to be the European People's Party, who is not here tonight, which is really a pity. But what would it take for you to make a deal with Frans Timmermans and the Socialists? They are so much close together there. What would it be for you to make such a deal, handling him, handing him over the Commission presidency? Well, I have to say frankly that I would prefer other option. Very brief answer. <laughs> brief is good. Brief is good. Uh, now we turn to you, Mr. Verhofstadt. Friends of Poland are part of his party, you know. Mm -hmm. um, Mr. Verhofstadt, you've been attacked on billboards and more by Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban. He receives more EU money than he pays, and he stands accused of trashing European values and rule of law. Would finding his government or holding back EU money fix the problem, or what else would? No. Well, we have now a regulation about that. So finally, I think that uh, besides the Article 7 procedure, uh, we decided that in the future, when a country is not in accordance uh, with uh, the uh, values of the European Union, uh, that we will withdraw the money. Not the money uh, for the people, but for the government, for the administrations. And that's an, a new way uh, of thinking. Uh, and that is because I think uh, in the European Parliament and also with, uh, with the support of the Commission, and it was Frans Timmermans was responsible for it, for the first time we uh, didn't look away from these questions. Neither in Poland, neither in Hungary, and not even in Romania, I have to say. Or the Czech Republic. Uh, or the Czech Republic. I have no problem to tell them all. We put them out. Uh, of our group if they are not uh, uh, in, uh, in our quarters. But there is one point that we didn't raise uh, this evening. Why it is that we all cannot succeed in our proposal from time to time? Well, I have to tell you, that is the elephant in the room, European Council, who is still deciding with unanimity and is blocking most of the files that we have discussed this evening. Thank you, Mr. Thank you. Thank you. Now, the question that we are going to pose you now is your chance to give final comments. We're already at the end, almost. We have a question from Ine Tollenaars, who is a campaigner with the anti-poverty NGO One in Brussels. As said, I'm an activist, and uh, in my experience, most politicians do not really have the political will or courage to really build and improve Europe, but instead they tend to focus on quick fixes and uh, crisis management. And how are you going to inspire the European citizen and especially young people? And more con concretely, what is your boldest idea for the future of Europe? Baz Eickhout, the floor is yours. What is your boldest idea for Europe? The boldest idea is to make the sustainable development goals, and that's where one stands for, its eradication of poverty, to make that the lead in all our policies, including our trade policies. Because this is one of our policies where, until now, trade and delivering on trade was the only aim. Whereas for the Greens, for me as a Commission President, it is about eradication of poverty. Make that central. That's why we do trade deals. That will create a race to the top instead of what we do now, a race to the bottom. Thank you. <laughs> Ms. Tomic, what is your boldest idea? Well, uh, uh, concerning the trade policy, European Union is the biggest trade market and it should have a very, very strict rules about what we are importing. And we should never have in our markets anything what is produced with slavery work, with children work, with destroying the nature, rainforests and oceans. And this will move all the earth in the different position. <laughs> Thank you. Giva Hochstadt of Liberals and Democrats. Now, I was hesitating. I want to talk about European army because I think it's the biggest waste of money inside the European Union to have 28 armies for the moment. But I will take something else that is European migration policy. Because the nationalists and the populists, I, well, I cannot understand, but I cannot accept, and I think it's the same for the others, that there are still thousands and thousands of people dying in the Mediterranean Sea at all door because of the lack of a European migration policy. Because when there is a problem with migration, whether it's asylum, it's not Europe that is the source of it. It's all the member states who are not willing to deal together with this issue. To have a European border and coast guard, for example. 
to have European asylum rules, the Dublin system, still blocked in the European Council, to have also a European economic migration, a type of a blue card, because it's nonsense to talk about migration and to say, oh, they cannot enter. Thank you. We now turn to Jan Zaradil. Floor is yours. Final statement. Well, perhaps I could start with what my constituents tell me. And my constituents tell me that they do want Europe that does less, but does it better. Sometimes they have a feeling that European Union is patronizing them, is lecturing them, is telling them how to live, what to do, and they are not happy with that. And this is my idea of the European Union of the future. I want scaled back European Union, I want looser and flexible European Union, I definitely do not want an empire, I do not want United States of Europe. And now we turn to our final respondent, Franz Timmermans. You know, I can understand very well that if you're your age, did you think Europe is about crises? Because as long as you've been following Europe, we've been going from one crisis to the other. But we are capable of very bold things. My parents' generation saw an incredible thing. Reconciliation between France and Germany, thought impossible. I saw myself the fall of the Berlin Wall and the reconciliation of the whole of Europe, which was thought impossible only a couple of years before. The next generation, our task, is to bring real reconciliation between Europe and Africa. That is the only way we're going to deal with the migration crisis. That is the only way we can retain our feeling of humanity. Because every time somebody dies in the Mediterranean, it's not they just dying, it's a piece of our humanity that is lost. And this opens a door to the nationalists, to the extremists, to the xenophobes. This opens a door to politicians describing other people as rats. We, I don't want to go back to that part of European history. I want us to embrace the future. And if you want one bold idea from me is embrace Africa as a sister continent that we need to develop together to create a prosperous future for all of us. That would be my bold idea for you. And also, make sure you go out and vote. Continue this debate online with the hashtag MaastrichtDebate. Get out there between the 23rd and the 26th of May and cast your vote. And go to politico.eu forward slash EU2019 if you want to follow further news about this election. Thank you to all of our candidates. And again, Rihanna. Thank you. And that wraps up our highlights from the EU presidential debate in Maastricht in the Netherlands. And now it's time for a May miracle. We have got the podcast panel back together again after a few weeks off. Hey, Alvafin. Hi, it's a pleasure to be back with you guys. Hi, Lena Rabarouz. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Alba. Good to see you both. You're all in a very good mood for another day of disgusting air quality here in Brussels. I'm sure we had a day off yesterday, so... That's also true. A bit of hangover here in the podcast panel. <laughs> now, I thought, hopefully not in an egoistic way, that we might continue a little bit of the Maastricht debate, debate about the debate. We've all just listened to it on the first half of the podcast. What did you guys think from how you followed it, however closely or distantly that was? I think it's interesting. I thought it was better than the last debates between the lead candidates for the commission presidency. I would say that I was, while I was thinking about it, I was thinking, does this really work? Because they have to have a good level of English, you know, to be able to, and it, it, it kind of works against you if you aren't from one of the countries where English is, you know, really strong. So, for example, there was... But the yeah. job works against you then too, because you're going to do most of the job in English. Yeah, well, that's true as well. I do, You do need to have a good level, but I think debate-wise, your choice of words is really important. We know that, you know, there's a lot of psychology behind the words that are used. So, yeah, I think I, while I was watching it, I was thinking, God, is this really fair? How about you, Lena? It was really good. The questions were excellent. Um, You're fluffing me now. <laughs> always the truth. And it's important that it becomes a habit. And I hope when once uh, the president of the commission will be elected, uh, just like in the US, hopefully there will be like more debates. I believe the set was really... Um, it did a, feel like a, a real yeah, debate. I know that sounds strange, did, yeah. but yeah. I didn't think it would be yeah. so professional and yeah. and almost so American looking and it came across yeah. very, very much very, like very much so sad that not everybody was present mm -hmm. uh, people that claim democracy and uh, openness and transparency were chickening out to be that much in public well that's one of the other uh, problems is that because 
Europeans don't get to vote for the commission president, in some ways the debate is mm. artificial because you're asking yep. people who aren't on a ballot paper to have a debate and you're asking people to watch it. Mm. And more than 210,000 did watch it live, mm. as well as however many saw it on television. So it's a fairly decent number. But there is that kind of element of strangeness. And mm. I think what it does is it gives people like Manfred Weber, who wasn't in the debate, mm. an excuse to not be in the debate. Because what we know from the experience of other countries, and in particular America, is the biggest factor in all the candidates, especially the one who's ahead in the opinion polls, the biggest factor in them turning up to vote is the expectation that they will turn up to debate. So if there isn't this external pressure saying, hey, you better be there or there's a political price, Mm -hmm. they often feel Mm -hmm. like they can just not do it. And as well, I don't know if they make any assessment on the feeling and how much it influenced people's opinions here in Europe as they do in the US. It would be interesting to introduce that in the future. Yeah, and I think I have another point of comparison because I recently attended a presidential running mate debate in Malawi and the same themes were coming up. It was very interesting. That is fascinating. Yeah, and also someone didn't turn up and I think it hurts you more than being bad in the debate. It hurts you more not to show up because people think you lack the steel, the courage to, to go and do it. But it was interesting with the same kind of themes came up. I feel, you know, if I was watching an Irish debate, we probably wouldn't have been re- really talking that much about the sustainable development goals. Which yeah, would it would be pretty outward looking in Ireland. Would we would say. be pretty outward looking, but I just don't think that would come up because we don't really speak that kind of global language. But when I was in Malawi, it's very interesting because they're obviously very influenced by donor money. So they speak this language. They could even quote which sustainable development goal was on gender equality or what, et cetera. So that, in that way, they, they struck me as being quite similar. I have to say, I did. I, I enjoyed it. I didn't watch the entire thing now, but I also like Game of Thrones. I watched Game of you? Thrones. Let's as well. get real. So it's, yeah, it was. Well, that was. <laughs> I have to say, a little bit more gripping. Um, the Battle, <laughs> Battle of Winterfell, but it was. I think it. It really did feel like a. Pre, uh, you know, a proper presidential debate, and I really liked the topics as well, and I liked the way you chose the topics, and I liked the audience that you were mainly yeah. trying to speak to, which was young people, yeah. because I work for an organization that works with youth and children, that was really cool to see. And I think we have our own campaign around the European elections, but I can see the themes that we're talking about, you know, that the, the children and young people are the future of Europe and we yeah. need to be reaching out to them because we missed that in the Brexit debate. Mm-hmm. And the turnout is super low amongst these groups. Like it's truly yeah. only yeah. about a quarter of people under yeah. 30 do vote in this election. And that's like a critical level of low turnout. Yeah, that's, yeah. But it's so, work, a good work as well from the university to continue to do that for uh, Maastricht to, it's at the end of the day, one of the best universities when you want to hire someone with European studies. And I think they need to keep it up together with Politico. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think good job to you guys because it, it did, it looked professional, slick, and it was, you were like, you were very yeah. like a moderator in, in a debate, being a bit tough on some, yeah. Oh, yeah, I heard there was a round of applause um, when I cut off Giva Hofstadt. Uh, <laughs> there was a viewing party at the European Parliament. And, and, and there was a round of applause, applause on the Twitter as well, not only. And, and like everybody was like, oh, good. <laughs> yeah, well, I think Giva Hofstadt definitely was playing to the, the his role in the Parliament and really sticking it to the member states. I loved that because it, it kind of confirms and when you're watching things like that, it goes against this idea of populism and like it's the fault of EU. And he really was like, it's not it's not our fault we've been trying to push through migration policy it's member states that are blocking it and we want to do this and it's member states that are blocking it so it uh, i really enjoy that narrative because it's it just it it kind of takes the wind out of the sails of a nationalist or a populist to just to be saying mm. you know it's eu is the problem well let's move on to a very relevant topic to that point because someone put a bunch of wind into some nationalist and populist sails uh, yesterday and that is in relation to the formation of a new government of estonia so even though the two biggest parties are both from the liberal alde family here in brussels and even though they form a very clear majority together in Parliament, we don't have a centrist Liberal government in Estonia. We've got one with five far-right ministers who performed white supremacist salutes, basically, when they were sworn in yesterday. And I have nothing to say apart from that I think it's completely outrageous, but I thought maybe you might have some reactions to how we ended up here. I think it's a very annoying approach. If you have a majority, and there's a lot of European countries now that... 
are struggling with, you know, no one really having power. And if there's a clear consensus among the electors, the votership, that they want a centre left, then I think there should be a responsibility that you join together for the good of the country. That's party politics really getting in the way of moving things forward. And then, yeah, I think inviting, giving... Not, they have five now ministerial seats. Mm-hmm. That is really giving them a platform within your government to, you know, spout more, yeah, crazy things. They were doing a lot of fake news, I heard as well, around the... Ah, uh, yeah, they told their voters not to use Estonia's e-voting system, yeah. which is completely secure, has never been hacked, wasn't hacked during this election at all, but effectively told them their votes would be stolen if they used it. Now, a lot of their voters ignored that advice and went and used the system anyway, but... It's an example of how they don't just stick to topics like migration. They spread the drama into lots of other areas. Let's hope we don't see more of these in the coming national elections in other European countries. I mean, we have now Spain. They just got their uh, socialist uh, big win. But still, we will need to watch how they are going to form the government. Are we going again to do, as Alva just mentioned, party politics or the country's interest, uh, Europe interest? Sanchez could be in a lot of trouble. I mean, he got twice the number of seats and votes as any other party. But we saw those two parties in the centre-right really push rightwards in the Mm -hmm. election campaign, Mm -hmm. trying to slow the momentum of Vox, the far-right party. But now that they've kind of locked themselves in this quite right-wing corner, you know, they might demand a very tough price on Sanchez. We might not be getting the progressive government the results suggest we would be getting. Yeah, so it's too early to celebrate and Mm. very much likely to repeat other scenarios like Estonia. I should give one more bit of information to anyone listening which is that the party that came first in the election, the Liberal Reform Party, they were asked to form a government and the current governing party, the Centre Party, who had the Prime Minister before, Yuri Ratas, and they have the Prime Minister now, they went behind the official formation process to do this deal with the far right. So they didn't even allow, really, the official process to unfold. Yeah, and then also, like, are they really going to be able to work together? That's the... Is this... I mean, I think that that Theresa May saw that as well with the DUP, who are much more like morally conservative. And they found it really difficult to work with them because they're so hard line on things. And they weren't even in the cabinet. I mean, imagine five DUP people in the British cabinet. Yeah, that is actually, yeah, exactly. I didn't look at what roles they had, but apparently they're more junior ministers, which is is good. But still, even junior ministers can put spanners in the work sometimes. So, yeah, it's very, very shocking. And also... The other thing that maybe the listeners should know about is this new far right symbol is actually the symbol yeah. for OK. So, I mean, that's one that I use as an emoji a lot, but it's a now taking on a totally different meaning. It's a very plausible deniability situation, isn't it? Yes. You can just do white power now and be like, oh, I just meant OK. But do you know what does it mean in other parts of the words? Of no, the word? tell me. It's mean like, wait and see. I'm going to... Oh. Um, it's like threatening one. Oh, wow. Well, you know, if you're like, you well, will see. I also one. wore a shirt with pineapples on it to a Facebook event this week. And I got told that I wore the it's complicated emoji. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> how is a pineapple a reference to it's complicated? Like, I was just like. A I mean, pineapple is complicated. Everything they're is a minefield these days. Yeah, that is. But yeah, yeah, now we can't do the OK Both sign the, anymore. Uh, just um, FYI, everyone. OK, people. nothing's OK. Everything's complicated. Thank you very much for another wonderful podcast panel. <laughs> See you next week. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Thanks everyone, for listening. As always, uh, podcasting is a team effort, so I want to give my big thanks to Andrew Gray and Wei Dong Lin. This episode couldn't be possible without them. If you haven't already signed up to receive EU Confidential, you can go to politico.eu forward slash registration. We'll send it to your inbox every week. And we will keep having this great community. Thank you very much.